just like you do. Welcome to Lawyers Are Assholes. I'm your host, Brett Adams, a lawyer, I should say a recovering lawyer, who found a platform to address a broken legal system. This is where we call out incompetent and unscrupulous lawyers, prosecutors, and judges. Anyone that touches the legal system, we're coming after you if you're an asshole. My guest today is Tom Penders. Now, if you're a sports fan, uh, you'll know who Tom Penders is. Tom Penders is one of the winningest uh, NCAA basketball coaches in the history of the game. Uh, long stints coaching at Texas, uh, Houston. Very, very successful uh, collegiate coach. Uh, a really good friend of mine. And you're going to hear the, the stories. One of the greatest nights of my life when I met uh, Tom Penders. Uh, and uh, just give you a handle. It, it involves the uh, L.A. Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, Bob Huggins, Jerry Tarkanian, and uh, a couple of models. Um, and uh, we're going to get into that uh, a little bit. But Tom is on here because Tom has has been through the civil litigation grinder, and we're going to talk about the trials and tribulations of, of uh, defending two cases, both which he won by jury verdicts, but the expense, um, the inability for most people to actually represent themselves because of the cost in civil litigation. Now, Tom's a, a different animal because he's done very well financially and had the ability to, to pay these defense costs. But we're going to go through uh, his uh, horrendous history and involvement with the legal system. So before we bring Tom in, we're going to talk about the asshole of the week. Now, normally I do a couple of these, but this asshole today deserves a, an entire section. Actually, the entire show could be about specific assholes of the weeks across the country, but but this one takes the case, um, and, and it's a little bit personable to me. But in Columbus, Ohio, we had a little bit of uh, public corruption uh, cases over the past couple of years, and um, we had a fellow. In full disclosure, he's a really good friend of mine uh, named John uh, Rayfell. So John was charged and convicted a few years ago for extorting some political contributions. Uh, paid his dues, um, served uh, 16 months in a federal uh, penitentiary, and uh, life went on. Uh, John came back out, um, tried to get his life back together, um, and frankly uh, did have his life back together, except they came back, the the feds came back after him for another charge. It should have been, frankly, uh, charged at the same time the original case was, but to make a long story short, and here's why this fella, Peter Glenn Applegate. Now, why this guy has a hyphenated name, I, I don't know, but he's an assistant federal prosecutor in the assistant district here in Columbus, Ohio. So uh, John Rafel is charged again, works out a plea agreement, and uh, goes to get sentenced. And uh, the federal judge here in the 6th District, Watson, uh, says to the prosecutor and to John, uh, verbatim, transcript, you've been to prison Watson told Rafael at the hearing, you've come out of prison, you lost your mother, you lost your brother, you lost your business, you lost your reputation. Now, apparently, uh, for Mr. Glenn Applegate, this wasn't a satisfactory way of dealing with uh, Mr. Rafael's sentence because Mr. Watson gave him 18 months of home confinement, okay, 18 months and another conviction, all right? So now what happens at this point is that this Mr. Glenn Applegate files a 49-page appeal of the sentence, okay, uh, which, which he basically has zero chance. I mean, the discretion is discretionary, but here's the issue. You, you've got a guy, John's almost 67 years old, uh, twice convicted felon, 
Uh, the judge gave him a break with home confinement. He's already spent 18 months in prison. He is in horrendous health, almost 67 years old. What is the purpose of putting this guy at our tax dollars back in the pokey? Sam Shemansky, a uh, well-renowned, uh, I should say, a criminal defense lawyer, uh, a buddy of mine who practices here in this jurisdiction, said it best. Uh, such a move to appeal the sentence is not even allowed in state court, says Sam. But just because you have the right to appeal doesn't make it appropriate. Uh, what you have here is a bunch of crybaby because the judge has the courage to do what is appropriate. I can't agree with Sam uh, anymore. Now, I don't know if uh, now this guy's an assistant prosecutor. Uh, I don't know if he was forced to do it uh, by uh, uh, Kenneth Parker, the newly appointed uh, U.S. attorney. But it, it really is outrageous. I mean, and I, uh, I reached out to the guy, invited him on the podcast. And of course, they're not going to respond. They're not going to come on. And he, he refused in an email to do it. At first, I had to chase down their emails because apparently they're so important that you can't get an email of a assistant U.S. attorney, which is outrageous. So what I do, I went out and I did a public records request. I'm going to get all their emails. They're just not that damn important to, uh, to not allow the public to be able to communicate uh, with them. But anyway, this guy uh, is absolutely uh, the asshole of the week. I can't wait till he's embarrassed with this court of appeals decision that comes back. And then we can find out. Um, I'd really like to know, actually, I'd really like to know what motivates this guy. I said this to him in an email. I said, what would motivate you to, to, to sit in your office and write a 49-page appeal brief trying to, trying to send the, this guy back to prison. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, what goes through your thought press to, to, to do this to another human being? I just don't get it. Mr. Glenn Applegate, uh, hyphenated name, you are the asshole of the week. Welcome, welcome, Tom Penders to Lawyers Are Assholes. Now, I got I to, gotta, we got to tell the listeners, uh, uh, Coach, before we get into this thing, how, how you and I met in one of the most memorable uh, evenings of my my life uh, involving uh, Donald Sterling, Bob Huggins, who who I was representing at the time for a job with the Clippers, uh, Jerry Tarkanian, and yourself. We go to we go to uh, we go to uh, the the coaches hangout in in Vegas, and and that's the first time I met you, and and that was a hell of a night, wasn't it? Oh, amazing. Uh, when when I think back on it now, for those those uh, listeners not quite as adept at sports world as is Coach and I, uh, Bob Huggins was coaching at Cincinnati at the time, and the Clippers were interested in him jumping into the NBA, and so we set we set up this uh, meeting, and I remember uh, Sterling's office had called me before and said uh, that Mr. Sterling wanted to bring a couple of associates. And, and if you remember time, he brings in these two, I don't know if they were 20 year old models. Uh, we're going to call them models, but we had those girls, we had Sterling, we had, we had hugs and, and hugs. And I walk in and, and like look at each other and say, Oh my God, this is, this is really happening. And then, and then the other thing time, remember Shelly Smith from ESPN was in and she comes over and says, well, she obviously figures out we're, we're there with the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers with Tarkanian, with Bob Huggins. There's no other reason than for us to be there than to be talking about a job. And, and I said, Shelly, I promise you, I said, just please don't say anything. This is, this is very sensitive. You know, Cincinnati 
wants him back. He, Bob doesn't know what he wants to do. Please don't say anything. And she kept her word. And then some people uh, in the next table had overheard, and they actually ended up calling Fox. And then I had to end up apologizing to her, saying, hey, we didn't, you know, we're protecting this, but we didn't know this was happening. But but anyway, a long-winded story to to the beginning of a, a great friendship. And I appreciate you coming on from Miami. Um, and I really wanted to talk about the uh, litigation crap that you went through, uh, Coach, and and how it, it, it seriously, if anybody wasn't in your position and had your economic wherewithal and principal, because you were principal and you weren't going to pay anybody just to get rid of the case. And that's what I want to talk about and the frustrations and and um, tell us about the, the two pretty high profile litigation pieces that you ended up as a defendant in. Well, I had uh, probably in my life, I had four situations where I had to go to court. One was my first marriage after 10 years was dissolving. And uh, my wife at the time and I had come to the conclusion that this wasn't working. We got married at age 21 and uh, we had a couple of kids. We're living in New York City and uh, we didn't know what we wanted to do and we split. And then you know how those things work. But I did. I was successful in, in the fact that I got custody of my two children and actually won a divorce in New York City. <laughs> that was the first one. And I wasn't impressed with uh, the opposing lawyer. And I felt that, you know, just, just being truthful was the best way if you're ever in that situation for those people that, you know, are going to face it. Uh, you, it's good to have an honest lawyer if you can find one. And I was <laughs> successful in doing that. Uh, but that, I, I want to go back uh, on that night in Las Vegas uh, a little bit when we we met for the first time. It, it was a custom in the summertime, whenever I went out to Las Vegas, I would meet Jerry Tarkanian. And earlier in that day, uh, and that's how Tark is, you know, just meet me at Piero's restaurant. It was a popular place for him. It was probably the only restaurant he ate at. Uh, it, and and it, it became a place for me, so much so, the owner of the restaurant, a guy named Fred Glussman, who's still in that business. Uh, and it's my favorite place. So I go in there, um, and I was shocked to see Hugs in there, my man, Bob Huggins. <laughs> And it was kind of a reunion for us. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting at the table, and I realize what's going on. And you and I got to talking a little bit. And then uh, Hugs uh, left for a few minutes, went to the bathroom. And then I was pushing him for the Clipper job along with you, or at least trying to get Sterling Donald Sterling, the infamous Donald Sterling, who I had met for the first time, I'm telling him he's nuts if he doesn't go after Bob Huggins because I think Bob is one of those guys that would be a great pro coach. And certainly 20 years ago, he was one of the hottest names uh, and most qualified guys in college basketball. And Donald Sterling, after uh, it was over, after that, 
three or four hour uh, dinner we had with Shelly Smith, uh, you know, who I knew. I knew her for oh, probably 15 or 20 years. Uh, she had a great career as a sideline reporter in college basketball and just about everything else uh, for ESPN. Uh, so anyway, it, it was kind of a reunion, but I realized early on that he was interested in Bob Huggins. So I decided, well, I'm going to help my friend Bob Huggins here. But when it's over, uh, and it was, we closed the place. Oh yeah! Oh, so it was. Sure it, was it was. It was a long. It was a long <laughs> dinner because I remember riding back to uh, riding back to the hotel. Now, now Sterling, of course, he's staying. He's you know I'm a, I'm a, I'm slumming at the Mandalay Bay, and he's at uh, he's at the Ritz, and they're connected out there. At least they were at the time. Yep. And and we went in uh, in the lobby, and he put out on he put on the napkin what he was gonna what he was gonna offer hugs, and uh, he spent the the entire weekend contemplating it and, he, and Bob finally decided he wasn't going to do it but I think if you ask him today and and he may he may have regretted that because he uh he would have lasted a couple of years if the Clippers got fired and and be somewhere else now um you know making making six seven eight million dollars a year not more coaching mm-hmm. coaching in the in the league but but anyway I don't want to bore our listeners with all of our our good uh, old sports stories but Brett, we became we became friends after that. Yeah, and that was great. We I, got to you. You offered me a, an opportunity to go out and see the Memorial Golf Tournament. Yeah, and I was like a kid in a candy store oh. for a couple of days out in out in Columbus, Ohio, and yeah. and then you know we just had a friendship afterwards, yeah. and we talk all the time. And I never had a real agent. Uh, Brett, but if I needed one, you were the guy I would have called to represent me because we became friends and trusted friends. So, well, that's that's, know, that, that's part that's of what the you got to do. Of the situation. Oh, yep, I appreciate. Exactly. I appreciate. I really appreciate you saying that. You remember? Do you remember your buddy uh, 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 Tom's really close with with Jim Nance? Do you remember uh, Nicholas kind of stiffed us mm-hmm. a little bit when we went up in the tower and. Uh, and Lanny Watkins and and uh, and and Jim were very inviting, and 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 Nicholas sat there like a bump on a log. But that's a different story too. But anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway. So so enough name dropping. We I want to get back to the 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 two bullshit national cases that you had where you went to jury on the one where the coach accused you of defamation and you mm-hmm. win that case. And I know why you fought it because you didn't, you, you weren't going to roll over and pay somebody a dime when you were trying to protect your reputation. Exactly. Well, my dad was a high school coach and a legendary coach back in Stratford, Connecticut, where I was born and raised. It's right next to Bridgeport. It's kind of a sister city. And my father was the most popular man in Stratford, Connecticut. You know, he built baseball fields uh, for the for everybody in the town. And uh, from five years old to 15 years old, uh, he, he started a, a program where every grammar school in the city uh, had somebody in the summertime, you know, it's kind of a camp deal for kids to play baseball or and, 
everything from horseshoes to playing checkers. So kids stayed out of trouble in the summertime and he didn't get a dime for it. But that was just some of the things he did in the city of Stratford. And, and he used to say this all the time that nobody can put a value on your name. And, uh, that stuck with me. And, you know, as a coach, you're a public figure. And anytime anybody wants to know what a coach is making salary-wise, all they have to do is send a letter saying it's public information and they can find out at least what the school is paying you, not your shoe contract or your television or radio deal, but, you know, your basic salary and your benefits and things like that come from your contract. Uh, but I got, you know, I got sued by an assistant coach uh, who never applied for a job after I left. Uh, I can say it after I left Texas. But it was a situation I found out later on where he was he was pushed by the athletic director who we had a very public pay-to-tay, so to speak. And it, it wasn't a happy splitting but the same athletic director had offered me a new five-year deal about five months earlier before he started trying to push me out, which is what happens in college basketball. Very few coaches are going to just resign on their own. The reality is of it, if, if you're a coach and you, and you get pushed out, you're going to get a nice you know, package to leave. Uh, so I wasn't really against that part of it. Uh, but the athletic director and I got into a personal situation, which I explained in my book, Dead Coach Walking, uh, that that story is in there. And, I, you know, the athletic director and I made up years later, uh, and those things happened. But the best year I ever had in, in coaching was when I left the University of Texas and went to George Washington University because I got, was being paid by two schools. <laughs> uh, I don't know what Mike Krzyzewski was making in 2001, but I did really well. <laughs> and it, 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 it made Sports Illustrated the, the whole story. It wasn't just about me, but it was about assistant coaches who take the rap for head coaches. Well, first of all, there were no rules broken uh, in the situation. Well, an athletic director pushes a former assistant, and uh, but wasn't was actually that, an assistant? But Tom, wasn't that part? I mean, they were trying to get leverage on you for your buyout too, right? I mean, weren't they pushing this yeah. this lawsuit to to try to limit the amount of money that 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 they were going to pay uh, have to pay you? But the fact is, you 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 actually. You said I'm not. I'm not authorizing school to pay anything. I'm not paying anything. We're going to trial, and you went to trial, and you and you you won a jury verdict. Yes, I had to. I was living in Washington D.C. in Potomac, Maryland, uh, when the suit came. You know, to to be that particular lawsuit. So you had to travel but back because jurisdiction was back in yeah, Texas. Had, so you had to travel back and forth. Yep. Take depositions. I had to go back and forth for that one and, and yeah, do all the depositions. And incidentally, uh, I had to 
you know, on the advice of my lawyer, I had to go to some friends of mine in the coaching business, just a couple of them. And Jerry Tarkanian was one of the coaches who was willing to take a deposition for me in that lawsuit. And he did a terrific job explaining how coaches get jobs and assistant coaches, how they're tied to head coaches, which a lot of people don't realize it happens. Right. You know, head coaches, head coaches, when they get pushed out, assistant coaches are hanging by a thread, uh, hoping to stay and, and, uh, you know, raise their families or whatever the case may be. Assistant coaches are the people that get all chewed up in this whole business when a head coach gets pushed out or fired. Uh, but yeah. I didn't get fired. They were trying to push me out and create a, a storm, a bleep storm. Right, with that with uh, that lawsuit. But let me ask you this, Tom. You're, obviously, you don't have the success that you have in your life without being a pretty tough guy. I mean, I know you're a tough guy, but... I mean, t- tell the listeners how how wearing that litigation is. I mean, just what a absolute oh. pain in the ass it is, and just emotionally, especially, man. I've I've I mean, the most nervous uh, moments of my life is is when that jury walks out waiting for a decision because I don't care what lawyer t- you never know. You just you never ever know what they're going to do at no, the end you- of the day. The only thing I would warn people or tell people about in a situation is, you know, a coach uh, is a public person. And, you know, your name is worth a heck of a lot of money, uh, but there's no price, uh, in my opinion, there's no price that I wouldn't pay to protect my name. And, and if you lose a lawsuit, that becomes a major national story. Uh, they use your name in the story when the lawsuit is it made cbs i remember uh greg gumbel on cbs announces in the middle of a uh, a game in the in the tournament i believe it was in the elite <laughs> eight round that tom penders is being sued by an assistant coach and i was watching the game and i hadn't been served with the papers yet you didn't even know so, you were being sur- sued until you heard it on national television. Exactly. <laughs> and I had some people that I knew at, at CBS. Jim Nance was one of them. And we've been friends since 1986 when he first came to CBS. And I was a coach at Fordham University in New York, in, in the Bronx. And uh, it was, you know, over my contacts and everything else that... <laughs> It helped me. Uh, it helped me in this regard. I was not a national coach or anything at, at that time. Uh, and a lot of people were going, why is this on CBS? I had a, about 25 phone calls within 10 minutes at that time asking me, what the heck is going on? And I said, well, I don't really know, uh, but I'll let you know when I get. <laughs> the actual papers. So I went through that. I had to fly uh, back down there for that one. And the opposing side, it was very evident to me when I got in the courtroom that I had a real professional lawyer uh, who was interested 
in saving my name and doing it for the right reason. You know, he, he put a cap on what he was going to charge me. But anyway, just going through that uh, was an education for me. But I'll say this, never go to court if it's just a judge making a decision. Uh, and, you know, I learned that early on in my life going through that divorce situation, I said, boy, I, I wish I had a jury, but it just turned out I was lucky that the judge wasn't tied to anybody politically. And uh, you know, he, I was happy with that one, but I said, boy, if I ever have to go to court again, I want a jury. Well, uh, well you, you've obviously next, had... You next got time some... I was there... Next time I was there, Brett, which is what we're talking about, uh, you know, I, I got sued after a story hit Sports Illustrated, the one I was talking about, and it talked about all the money that I made when I left the University of Texas. And somebody up in New Jersey, who I had had lunch with one time during the 1996 Final Four in New Jersey, uh, was right over the bridge, and most of the coaches were staying in Manhattan. I had lunch with some friends, and this agent type guy was was uh, representing some of my other friends uh, that were in the broadcast and television industry because I had done some work for ESPN for two Final Fours on ESPN two. I was the the Digger Phelps for ESPN two. On the on the deuce, they called it back in 1996, right. uh, when I had been doing a lot of work for ESPN, and I was told by somebody, a real big guy at ESPN, that any time I wanted to quit coaching and go into television, I had a job. So I felt like, as a you know, a little parachute from the business, if I decided to do that. I had the in with ESPN, but I wanted to know, you know, who should represent me in those negotiations when, if they ever happened. Well, that person, that that lawyer, uh, I had met one time. That, that you uh, no basically, that you basically, Tom, were interviewing, right? I mean, you're interviewing him to decide whether you want him yeah. to represent you, right? That's basically what happened. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, I know the story, yeah, so I'm trying to get, I'm getting ahead of it a little bit, and I don't want to, but, but that that particular uh, agent sued you, claiming a fee, claiming that he had actually exactly. negotiated your deal, right? Exactly. Right. And. There was no record of a phone call from him to me in his phone records. There were no letters uh, talking about this, quote, agreement I have with this guy. And I was shocked. I, I didn't even remember the guy's name. <laughs> but he, he, wanted to, he wanted to sue me. Well, he did sue me for a couple hundred thousand dollars because of the contract I did get. From right, the University right, of right. The contract that you essentially negotiated. So, yes. Yeah. And I had to go back to Morristown, New Jersey, as I'm living in Potomac, Maryland, just after I left George Washington University. And at that time, I was going to go to ESPN uh, at least for a couple of years and have some fun with that possible career. 
and that's what I ended up doing. But I had this lawsuit to deal with, and I didn't think it would be good for television uh, or if I wanted to get back into coaching or stay in coaching at that time if I lost a lawsuit uh, from a guy who says he represented me. You know, I always had a lawyer that would help me with the contract, but I basically told him the terms that I wanted in the contract, and his job was just to make sure that he was able to draw up a legal document that would bind the school to me and vice versa. And, and you know, I never wanted an agent at that time. I didn't need an agent. Uh, it was lawyers that helped me. Right, uh, but right. this guy thought that he could, you know, he could get a couple of hundred grand out of me, and again, uh, I had to go all the way back to to Texas to defend myself, as I had to do in Potomac uh, during this particular deal, where the agent was suing me. That was in Morristown, New Jersey. It was about a five-hour drive to go from Potomac, Maryland, to Morristown, New Jersey. And when I did get there uh, early on in that particular trial, I sized the judge up right away. I said, there's no way we're going in front of this guy if he's making the decision. And my lawyer was a guy I really didn't know, but Larry Brown's uh, uh, agent lawyer, a guy named Joe Glass, said, uh, This was the guy. Me out. Yeah. Do a deposition for you. His name is Joe Glass. Yeah, he, I know Joe. He since yeah. New passed Joe. away. Yeah. New Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great guy. And, and he had helped me with my contract going back to the mid-70s because of my relationship with Larry Brown. You know, we became friends. He actually represented one of my players from Columbia with his contracts over in England and uh, Scotland. He played for 20 years over there, and he coached there. His name was Alton Bird, one of the best point guards I ever coached in a draft pick of the Celtics the same year as Larry Bird. They would have had two birds on the roster if wow. Alton decided to go there. Yeah. But he went and played over in Europe, and, and he's now uh, an owner for the Nets G League team back in Brooklyn. Uh, he's been... Uh, with the Sacramento Kings, and now he's, uh, you know, he's still in the NBA in, in terms of front office, he, being the owner of a G League team. So anyway, but but you but you went but, represented out. But so you had the the you got uh, counsel from Joe, and then you had another jury trial. I mean, you 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 didn't offer him any money. I mean, you could have mm-hmm. paid him ten twenty grand and 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 been done with it. And you said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Right? No, exactly. Yeah, it's same thing, you know, defending your name. You know, what's it worth? And, mm-hmm. you know, those two lawsuits cost me a couple hundred thousand dollars. But to me, it was worth it. At that time, I was making, a, uh, you know, a lot less than a million dollars a year. I'll just say that. Yeah, but um, you still, but you were in a position, though, Tom, that you, you could afford it. Which is, you know, I mean, I tell people, uh, listen, mm-hmm. if you're if you're if you're a small business, I mean, unless unless I mean, this is unbelievable to say this, and 
but unless you got a dispute that you got a hundred grand on the line, I mean, it's just it's not worth it. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the the, the cost of the litigation. Again, that goes back to incompetent judges that can't keep control of the litigation, and and just allows deposition after deposition, and you know that, that happens with judges that have never practiced law because they don't know how to walk in and and say. Guys, you don't need to do this. I mean, let, how, how can we resolve this? That just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, Tom, on both these situations, what was your weight like before both juries came out? I mean, that's pretty uh, oh, pretty stressful, isn't it? I mean, I know I've been there. It's a lot more for... stressful than the, it's, a, it's like going through a hundred triple overtime games and losing <laughs> at the buzzer in all cases. So, yeah, yeah it. I didn't. I don't think I ever really got uh, over nervous for uh, a basketball game that I coached. And the bigger the game, the more relaxed I was because I figured I didn't have to motivate my players. I could just coach them and maybe work on a referee a little bit during the game, <laughs> a guy that needed a little, needed a little help from time to time. <laughs> but I was nervous to tell. Uh, uh, Britt, uh, during that time where you have to wait for the jury to come back. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I didn't want to risk doing it in front of the judge who was tied to the opposing uh, person who sued me and the judge. They were friends. They all uh, were from the same town of, of Morristown. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the lawyer and the judge were members of the same country club and probably played golf on numerous occasions. But they, you know, dragged the case out for, oh, God, a year and a half. I had to keep going back to Potomac, Maryland, coming from Potomac to Morristown. For pretrials. Probably seven times. Yeah. Yeah, For pretrials. And then most of the. For pretrials, Tom, where these judges want you there for no. D- damn good reason. I mean, if you're available by phone, you're, yep. that's fine. But but some again, these judges have never been in real life and understand the cost of going back and forth and paying the attorney fees. When when you know, it's almost like I, I there were certain parts of COVID that worked out for the legal system because you didn't have all these damn in person hearings. You could do them on Zoom and not have the the time and expense most of the time. Of being able to to do it, but the the fortunate part is you you did have the financial worth wherewithal to stand up for your name and and being able to challenge these guys where you know where the average person uh, you know they're gonna and especially in a small business center they're gonna pay five ten twenty grand to get rid of it and mm-hmm. unfortunately there's so many lawyers that take advantage of that that know you can't do it so let me. Let me squeeze a, a, a twenty grand out of them because it's going to cost them a hundred to to litigate this case, which is just total bullshit. Just bullshit. But yeah, it's just somebody trying to make money off your name, uh, get a little fame there, uh, get their name in the newspaper, and that's basically what happened in this case. But by choosing a jury, I felt comfortable that. You know, I believe there were seven jurors in this particular case in Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, and it was a case that should have lasted, uh, you know, about 12 hours. Instead, it dragged out almost two weeks 
because of the judge. Uh, he was he was obviously trying to set up situations where, you know, the guy who was suing me would have the best opportunity to win, and it was ridiculous. I mean, he actually every day he did something, uh, and at one point, my lawyer just got up and walked out of the courtroom. It was so ridiculous and absurd for him. And uh, I was wondering what in the world's going on here. The judge said to me, well, Mr. Penders, uh, where do we go from here? And I said, I don't know, Your Honor. You're the judge here. Uh, I don't know what I should do, but I'd be willing to represent myself if I have to, uh, because this case is, you know, it's ridiculous, it's absurd, and it's one of those frivolous lawsuits. So that's that so you were I able to win. say that. So you were able to stand up, yep. which is which is fantastic because most lawyers, frankly, are cowards. I, it's unbelievable these the lawyers talk this big game out in the bar into your in the office, mm-hmm. and they come in and they got their tail between their 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 legs. They're petrified. I mean, it just I've seen it my entire career. But, but Tom, I mean, just logically, you know, this is a contract case between you and this guy. It, you know, should have taken, the two witnesses should have been yourself and him, right? And then, and then, and then have that jury judge that credibility. Yeah. So instead this judge, you know, allowed this case to go, I mean, I don't even think it should have been 12 hours. You should have had this yeah, case, as you, as you this case should have been done in a day. <laughs> exactly. And Brian, you, you know, you know, a little bit more about law than I do, but you know how it goes. I didn't really know how they could, you know, delay a trial. I'd drive all the way, five hour drive. I'd get to the courtroom with my wife and all of a sudden there's nobody there. It's an empty room. And the clerk comes out and says, well, uh, we're going to have a trial a month and a half from now today. In the meantime, I'm there with my attorney. There's no opposing anybody. But the judge uh, said, come back in a month and a half. So I come back in a month and a half on that date. Same thing. Empty courtroom. No no opposing lawyer. The guy who's suing me that isn't there. Seven different times I, I had to do that. And I was, you know, my time was worth a lot of money. And my name was worth a heck of a lot more than the time. So, you know, I, I fought it and I won. And, and it was like an hour and a half, the jury came came back. And I didn't know whether, because it was in Morristown, New Jersey, but it was a unanimous uh, decision. And, uh, you know, I, I won. But your that concern case. was that you had a you you I were you were not on the home court, and you had that judge probably taint, tainting the right. jury. Uh, but this, but but showing up with, with the lawyer and driving that way, and then not having a hearing. I mean, there's got to be some accountability. I mean, here uh, there just there has to be, and the problem is, is the lawyers won't stand up and say anything. I mean, uh, because if you do, now you take some risk. If, you know, if your guy stands up and says, "Hey, this is." Bullshit! Why, why I'm driving all the way over here, wasting my time? And and you, you couldn't call me, you couldn't do anything to to stop this, and and then you run the risk of of alienating even even further. But you know what? That's hey, Thomas. Why I'm doing this podcast, man? I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm taking situations like yours and 
and and trying to make change with it because if you had a competent judge and a non-biased judge in your situation, probably one you don't even go to trial and and you get it resolved. Uh, but well, Fred, as you know, uh, people can sue you for anything in a civil case. They can sue you at any time for anything in our country uh, instead of having it like it is over in England where the loser has to pay all the costs, including the opposing lawyers. But in our country, you know, you have to pay your lawyer. I don't know what goes on with the guy who sued you. It was probably one of those. The lawyer gets a 75% and, and the uh, plaintiff, if he wins, he gets 25%. But the, the loser, which would have been me if I lost those cases, I would have been probably held up for at least a couple hundred thousand and all the expenses. Uh, so, you know, it would have been a year's salary out of my pocket uh, to defend myself. A lot of people don't know uh, what goes on in this case. Uh, the jury, you have to assume they know nothing about your profession. So I, I had some coaching friends like Jerry Tarkanian, and I'm sure Bob Huggins, if I had asked him to do a deposition, he would. Uh, but, you know, I had, uh, Tark was the main guy. He said to uh, that former assistant of mine in his deposition, like, Eddie, uh, I have a, an opportunity out here at, at Fresno, we have a place open now. Why don't you send me an email? And, you know, I think you're the type of guy that could fill that position. And, you know, that was played in the courtroom. And I think that had a big, because people don't realize, uh, you know, the coaching business, uh, coaches are hired all the time. And I don't want to mention any names, but, of guys who've been in litigation or have been uh, thrown out of coaching for five years because they broke some rules, whether they're assistant coaches or head coaches. But people don't realize that when you're a coach, a college coach in particular, you lose a lawsuit. You're probably, your career is probably ended at the college level. You might have to go, uh, you, you remember, uh, a guy, another coaching friend of mine, Jim O'Brien, who won a major lawsuit. Very well. yep. Yeah, he, he won a lawsuit at Ohio yes, he State. Did. He sued the athletic director in the school, but he couldn't get yeah. a job anymore at it, Division it One because he was literally That's blackballed. Right. That's right. Uh, because he won a lawsuit, he was fired without cause, and uh, you know Jim was one of the best coaches in the business. And he couldn't even get interviewed for college jobs after that because it's a big and a great human being too, Tom. I mean, he's, he was he was yeah, as good as human being as he people. was as a competent coach. But, yes, he was, and he he's uh, he I think now retired, but he had, he got a Division three job in Boston. He wanted to coach so badly that he said, uh, "You know, I'll coach Division three." He would have even coached high school if that was all that was available. He was a guy who could have coached in the NBA. Oh, he had a great absolutely. name, great, great person. He was also a great basketball player at Boston College. But you know, if you sue, if you sue, uh, it's so public. The case becomes public. Uh, 
so anyway, people don't realize that for us. They, people outside. That's why I wanted realize. you on here. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted the, to people to hear your story because one of the things that we're really advocating is, uh, especially in Ohio. I mean, you, you want to eliminate half the lawyers. Is that you require every case like your, your and your cases are perfect examples. Um, is that is that you're required to go to a mediation um, before you file a lawsuit? You want to eliminate half the lawsuits in the state of Ohio? Is you require mediation with a competent mediator, um, so you don't you don't get mm-hmm. it in some jackass's hands that that that's looking in in your case to get his name associated with you know I'm suing the you know the coach at Texas and 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 you're a bigger target. I mean, as a celebrity, you're a bigger you're a bigger target anyway. But but man, I think. We made the little education here, Tom, with your story, and and I really appreciate you you doing this and and catching up on this because I think it's a these these cases are indicative of why we need to change litigation and and uh, limit the role of lawyers in these kind of cases. And I think we'll be much better off as a society. But really appreciate you taking the time. Is it eighty five or ninety in your South Beach home right now? <laughs> Well, I'm very happy that I bought a condo down in Florida at age 20. I, I forgot how old I was, but that was about 2001, 21 years ago. Uh, you know, I had back surgery, so it's a nice place to rehab, uh, nice warm I'll weather. I bet it's probably not. I bet it's probably happy. not gone up in value in the last couple of years either, has it? No, but we'll, I'll never sell it. My wife and I love it here, and uh, we also have a home up in Rhode Island. But, you know, as you get older, you like the warm weather more and more, and I always did. And, uh, you know, we we sit here and watch the cruise ships go in and out. We've got a nice beach, which is an easy walk uh, from where we are, and uh, it's it's a great city. Uh, you, oh, you I love I, I love it down there. We got uh, we got two or three inches of snow come tonight. So pre- appreciate oh. that. Appreciate that visual. <laughs> it's, a, it's eighty-two uh, degrees here. All right. Eighty-two degrees. Yeah, I work for the Chamber of yeah, Commerce you do. down yeah, here. Yeah, you do. As a side hey, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming on, buddy. I really appreciate it. My right. pleasure. Thank you, Tom Penders. Great guy. Uh, great story. I wanted Tom on here to talk about his litigation experiences. We're going to have a lot of conversations moving forward about bad civil litigation, uh, bad plaintiff's lawyers, bad defense lawyers, and bad incompetent judges that, I mean, who in the world, what what competent judge would allow a dispute between two individuals uh, take two weeks of time, uh, extend it, this, uh, have pre-trials and you don't show up for I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. But until until lawyers have the balls to stand up and say, Judge, it's costing my client uh, money. Uh, I can't just not show up. I mean, I, you, you can't just have us drive five hours and, and, and not show up for a pretrial or whatever type of hearing it is. We need competent judges that, that are going to take control of that situation and not, and not let it happen. And the other uh, element that I wanted to the show was uh, Tom Penders made a lot of money coaching basketball, and and he could afford, he could absolutely afford to defend these cases, take it to the limit. I mean, even if he owed the money, he could afford to pay it. And most people can't; they just can't do that. But you know, we're going to harp on this for as long as as I'm able to do this podcast. But 
But if we can get legislators to take lawyers out of the process initially and not end up in a courtroom or somebody shotgun a lawsuit against somebody else, if we have what I've talked about as a mandatory mediation before you pay a filing fee to file a lawsuit, we'll eliminate half the civil litigations in the state of Ohio and we'll limit half. Uh, I don't know if we'll limit half of them, but, but my goal is to eliminate as many lawyers as I can. So uh, anyway, thank you for tuning in. That is my rant of the day, and we'll talk to you next time. Man.